It's great to see um, all of you all out on this New Year's Eve. Um, as Pastor Bo said, it's, um, it's a time that we want to, that we try to each year um, to devote the first few weeks right around this time to the subject matter of prayer. Um, that we realize that um, it, it's, a, it's a season whenever maybe just maybe you feel in a little more disciplined or inclined towards discipline. Um, I know like the algorithms know that about us, right? And I know that as a pastor about us. I don't know about you, but on my Facebook feed currently, it's filled with like uh, exercise routines for me to like subscribe to. Um, I feel so like um, seen and so judged by those things, right? Because I'm getting them for like men over 40, which is true of me. But like, you know, it's like, I mean, I, yes, I need to exercise, but put some young dudes on there too, right? Um, and so um, maybe just maybe you are feeling that. Like maybe you're like, hey, I want to, you know, give in and maybe try to learn some new habits. And maybe some of those habits are, are spiritual. I hope that they are. And so let me just encourage you, um, first and foremost, like when it comes to like physical um, habits and physical exercise, like, it's kind of like, you know, a hard thing to pull up in front of that gym for the first time, right? And look on the inside. And what you're thinking is like, what's the guy across the counter thinking? Or the person in there that didn't give up last year whenever I was here for the month of January and February of last year and didn't make it the rest of the year? You know, what are they thinking about me? And sometimes like that can oftentimes, I think we can um, superimpose that on God. That we can kind of think like, hey, I have this new desire. It's a new year and I'm gonna, you know, study my Bible and I'll read it through in a year. And maybe you'll only make it to February. Or maybe you'll say, hey, I want to give myself to prayer and try to pray better. Maybe for Christmas you've got a prayer journal, some new pens, some new highlighters, some new things, a new book that I'm going to read. And sometimes you can superimpose, like, maybe God sees my failure and maybe he judges me according to that. And let me just tell you, that is so untrue of the God of the Bible. That in fact, what we want to do is what we want to do is not just encourage us to pray, not just talk about the benefits of prayer, but what we also want to do is in Scripture it reveals the heart of, of God to us. The heart of Jesus to us when it comes to prayer. And here's how Jesus is. He's patient. He's patient with us who are trying to learn to pray. In fact, we call this each, each year, we call this little series, Lord, teach us to pray. And that's taken out of the Gospels. That's taken from Jesus' very disciples. Jesus' disciples approached him and they asked him to teach them to do one thing. They didn't say, Jesus, teach us how to cast out demons, although they encountered demons they needed to cast out. I mean, they come back to Jesus rejoicing. Jesus, demons are subject to us. Like, man, we got this power you've given us. But they never asked Jesus, Jesus, teach us how to cast out demons. They never said, Jesus, we saw you heal the sick. Teach us how to do that. Jesus, we saw you raise the dead. Teach us how to do that. One thing they asked Jesus to do, Jesus, teach us to pray. They must have seen Jesus in prayer and seen that it was powerful. They must have seen the benefit in Jesus' own life and Jesus' own ministry of prayer and they had this desire in them and they come to Jesus, Jesus, teach us to pray. Now look, Jesus doesn't rebuke them in this. This I guess is in the, the Gospel of Luke. I'm gonna say Luke 11, somewhere in there. Jesus doesn't say, oh, ye of little faith, although he'll say that from time to time to his disciples. But in this instance, Jesus doesn't say, oh, you've got such little faith that you grow in faith and then you can pray better. Jesus is patient with his disciples and he teaches them to pray. He gives them the model prayer. And so as you think about your own life and discipline about prayer, first and foremost, know this, that Jesus is eager to teach us how to pray. He's eager to teach us to pray. 
He's patient with us. It's one of the works and the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Jesus will ascend on high. He will send down the Holy Spirit. And one of the the, the works of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is enabling us to pray and teaching us more about praying, giving us a desire to pray. And second, what this also teaches us, just in this little phrase of Lord, teach us to pray, it it teaches us that we can learn to pray that we can learn how to pray better and more effective and more, and what's effective means. Effective, I don't, by that I don't mean like getting what you're asking for. Not like your kids did when they come to you and like, hey, what do you want for Christmas? Well, here's my non-negotiable list of demands that I need for Christmas to have a satisfying Christmas. It's not, we pray like that. It's, that's not what, what I mean by effective prayers, but more God-glorifying prayers. Now, what is prayer? I feel like we always need to define it, although like the prayer is very simple. I mean, as I think Andrew Murray, uh, um, uh, an older saint pastor, as he said, it's like, it's something that even the uh, feeblest of children can do, right? Our children can pray and oftentimes our children pray better than we pray. And so it's something that even the, the feeblest of a child to do and yet it is uh, a, a, a task that even the, the deepest Christian, the highest and holiest uh, man or woman is, is learning to do. It's both things, right? We're constantly learning and even the most uh, mature saint is, would say, like, hey, I'm still learning to pray, and yet it is something that even a feeblest of a child can do. I always like, I think at this year, I, I quote John Bunyan. Um, that's different than Paul Bunyan. Paul Bunyan was the guy with the big blue ox. John Bunyan was a, a tinker. He fixed pots and pans that knew the Bible so deeply that I think it was Charles Spurgeon said of John Bunyan, that if you cut him, he would bleed out Bible. That's how well he knew the Bible. He said he was, knew the Bible even better than the Pope knew the Bible is John Bunyan, and so he's written several books, and here's John Bunyan's definition of prayer. Prayer is sincere, sensible, affectionate, pouring out of the heart or the soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit. Remember, it's one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit. For such things as God hath promised or according to the word, for the good of the church, with submission in faith to the will of God. That's a lot. These notes will be found, like if you want to, hey, I want to think about that more. Um, You can scan that QR code that Pastor Bo was talking about. There's a section there um, about, for the weekly sermon notes, and in there is a PDF of this um, slides that will be up on there, if you want to go back and look at that. What I really want to, uh, to tap into for the next two weeks is that first part in that definition. It's... He says prayer is sincere, sensible, affectionate, a pouring out of the heart or the soul to God. That prayer is, it's the means given to us by the Lord Jesus by which we process, like this is where we're going to be for the next two weeks, it's the means by which we process hard, deep, difficult emotions. Emotions that come from living in this world under the curse of the fall with our own sin, um, in light of our own sin, and with other sinners. That um, Jesus, as he's about to ascend on high, he gathers his disciples together, and Jesus tells them this. Jesus says, I have said these things to you you that in me you may have peace. There's a picture of something. Jesus is saying things to his disciples so that they would have peace. And then he says this, in the, in the world you will have tribulation. In this world you are going to experience hardship, 
difficulties, trials, that Jesus sums up with one word. In this world, you will have tribulation, but then Jesus says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. These tribulations that you and I experience, they come with them at an emotional cost. We feel these tribulations. These tribulations aren't just things that happen to us outwardly. They're things that you and I, that we feel from inside of us. They come with difficult and deep emotions. Emotions like loneliness and isolation and abandonment. Emotions that come from and produce anxiety, real thing, right? Depression and sadness and anger and frustration and fear. That's just part of living in this world. Like everybody in here, you have experienced emotions like that. And we all experience emotions like that. We feel real feelings of, again, loneliness and isolation and abandonment and anxiety and depression and sadness and anger and frustration and fear. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, in this world you will have tribulations. But then he says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And prayer is the means by which we move past these hard, difficult emotions to where we can take heart. When we can, when we can um, wrap Jesus' peace around our hearts and grab a hold of it with our hearts. That every one of us, we feel difficult emotions like I just described, do we not? And when we feel those things, there's a couple of things that we can do. There's kind of the, the pendulum, if you will, will swing one of two ways normally for us. The first thing that we will oftentimes we will do is we will ignore those painful emotions. We will deny them. We'll, we'll bottle them up, if you will. We'll, we'll stuff them down. We'll go on with life. We'll play hurt. We'll drop our shoulder. We'll press through. We'll keep going on. Possibly, just possibly, we'll numb the pain that comes from those emotions. We'll distract ourselves. We'll turn to any number of things that may distract us rather than feeling those real feelings. But what happens is it's kind of like a, a, a two liter, right? When you get a two liter bottle and you, you shake it up real good. That's what happens when we stuff down and bottle up those emotions that we feel. And then the least little thing, and we explode all over someone. We explode in anger and we explode in frustration. And where is it coming from? Why are we walk around like a ticking time bomb, ready to explode with the least little twist? Well, it's because we haven't processed those emotions that we feel, those hardships that we're encountering, the tribulations are bringing an emotional response to us and we don't know what to do with those emotions. So the first thing we do is we may deny them, ignore them, bottle them up, but sooner or later they will leak out. They're like, a, like, like toxic waste in our lives. Like it's the, it just goes with living life. It, does a, a, the, it produces something. Then what are we gonna do with that thing? Well, we can bury it, right? Like the guy in... in uh, out towards Louisville, there was a guy in the 1960s who you know, started collecting all this toxic waste from these factories and he just dug a big hole and buried this stuff down in you know, 55 gallon drums and over time, guess what happens? The drums broke down and all that stuff just leached out and leaked out and created this horrible environmental you know, tra uh, tragic thing. Leaches out into the drinking water that you drink probably still today, I'm just saying that's why you got that glow about you, probably. They wanna invest in a good water filter, just saying, just putting that out there, pastoral advice. But that's what we do when we deny those emotions. We bury them down and we think out of sight, out of mind, and they always show up. The second thing that we may do is we may give ourselves to them. We may feel all the feelings. 
not processing them. And that leads us to, to sometimes to pout, to sulk, to feel a sense of hopelessness, despair, fatalism. And not only that, do we feel all the feelings and live in that, but it also denies God the power to change us. Have you ever heard the saying that prayer changes things? Sometimes prayer changes our circumstances, certainly. James says that you have not because you ask not. You didn't pray, therefore you didn't get it. So certainly there are times when prayer changes our circumstances, but what prayer always changes is it changes us. And it denies God the power of that if we don't process in prayer the pain that we feel in our lives. That God, God, Jesus promises peace and that peace comes. It's a peace as Paul writes in Philippians 4, 7 that surpasses understanding. How do we experience that peace? We experience it in prayer. It happens and comes supernaturally, but it doesn't come accidentally. You're not just gonna encounter Jesus's peace. You've gotta learn how to take heart. You've gotta learn how to feel. You've gotta learn how to process. There's a better way that the Bible gives us to processing painful emotions that we experience. And the Psalms help us to do that. Like whenever the disciples came to Jesus, they say, Lord, teach us to pray. You know what Jesus could have said to them? I already have. You got it in the Bible. I've given you 150 prayers because that's what the Psalms are. They're Psalms, songs. Some of them, many of them are set to music or they were back in the day. They were songs. They're lyrics that have been sung. Um, many of them, like I said, are, song, are songs, but almost all of them are prayers. Some of them are poems, but almost all of them are prayers. What we have in the book of Psalms is we have 150 prayers prayed by real people with real emotions processing them before the Lord and so for the next couple of weeks what I want us to do is I want us to turn to a psalm and I want us to see what the psalmist is is feeling and then how he goes to the Lord to process that to give us a pattern for doing that so if you have your Bibles turn with me to Psalm 142 that's the psalm that I want to look at today Psalm 142 and we will read the text. If you would, to show honor to the reading of God's word, stand if you're able. And I know you're like, Pastor, this is out of order. You usually pray, read first. I wanted to set all of that up before we read it so that you can have eyes to see where we're going, eyes to, to, to understand this psalm. So Psalm 142. It starts off and it says, a, a maskil of David when he was in the cave. It's a prayer. David says, with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the, I look to the right and see there is none who take notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of living. Attend my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Thank you. Could be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that instructs us. Thank you 
most of all for Jesus who has come to free us, Lord. Lord, as we read this text, that many of us, our hearts may resonate with what David feels in this. There may have been seasons of time that we have, forgot, that we have felt forgotten. And I pray, Lord, as we read this lament, that it would instruct us and teach us how we can pray to you, how we can turn to you, Lord, and how we can experience hope in times that otherwise feel hopeless. It's in your name we pray, amen. What we have in the very beginning of that text, it starts off with, and it says, a maskil of David when he was in the cave, a prayer. And what we have is like a, an inspired description. Like above that, it says in our Bibles, it says, you are my refuge. That's what my Bible, the ESV says, you are my refuge. That part was added by editors later on. Even Psalm numbering it, Psalm 142, was added by editors later on. It wasn't that David wrote, wrote this is my 142nd Psalm. Well, David didn't even write all the Psalms, so he wouldn't have said that anyway. So that part is uninspired, but the, even the beginning, we have an inspired by the Holy Spirit, we have an inspired description that is original to the text of telling us what it is. You say, what is Psalm 142? Well, that's obvious, it's a maskil. Well, what's a maskil? We don't know what a maskil is, honestly. It's probably some liturgical term or some musical term. It would be like you dropping in on a Thursday, listening to the band, talk about music. They use words that you've never heard. They're talking about different things like keys. And I'm like, what? What is, what is that? No, I know what a key is, but still, they're using all these terminologies that maybe you don't understand. The same thing's happening here. It's something in antiquity that is gone, but it's a maskil of David when he was in the cave, and then it goes on to say, it is a prayer. It is a, 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 a prayer that he prayed. Now, this is a particular kind of prayer. We can take all of the Psalter, the 150 Psalms, and we break them down into different categories as we look at them and study them, and we say, what are they? And some of them, many of them are prayers, and then even within the prayers, there are certain types of prayer. And this is a certain type of prayer, a prayer called a lament. Now, the lament may not be something that you are familiar with, and if you were a member of the Point Community Church, for that, I apologize. I probably haven't equipped you very well as a church to lament, because this may be the first time I've ever preached or talked about lament. And I know that even this summer, that I realized that I was ill-equipped to lament, I had to learn how to lament, and it helped me greatly emotionally, helped me process a lot of pain that I've, that I've encountered in my life. One third, listen to that, one third of the 150 Psalms are laments, are prayers of lament. A third of the Psalms are prayers of lament. You say, what is a lament? Well, a lament can be defined as a, as a loud cry, a howl, or a passionate expression of grief. However, in the Bible, lament is more than just sorrow or talking about sadness or feeling sadness or even walking through the stages of grief. But a lament is bigger than that. A lament is a prayer offered in pain that eventually leads to trust. Lament, it invites us. The process of lament, praying lament, it invites us to turn our gaze from the rubble of life to the redeemer of every hurt. It calls us toward, um, it calls us to turn toward promise while yet we're still in pain. Now that's an excerpt from a book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. 
by a pastor by the name of Mark Vagrop. Great book. It's almost on the top 10 list. It has been a life-changing book for me, and I strongly encourage you to get it. It's in that like, list of resources. Currently, you can go to Gospel Coalition, and you can get an e-copy of it, I, th- I believe, for free. Who doesn't love books? Who doesn't love free books even better, right? A great book. And so a lament is, is more than just denying feelings, but it's also neither is it just feeling all the feelings and giving us to them, but rather what lament is, is a, a process. It's a process over time that enables us to, to turn, as he says here, from the rubble of life, the tribulations, the emotional pains that we're experiencing, and, and, and feel and look to Jesus to experience hope as the redeemer of every hurt. The Psalms of Lament, and we're gonna be looking at them for at least the next two weeks, they have a pattern to them. It's a pattern given to us to help us to to process the pain, to process the difficult emotions, and to experience hope, and here's the process. Most of these laments, here's the pattern. It begins with an address to God, followed by a complaint, followed by a request, And then lastly, an expression of trust and praise. And so we can, we'll superimpose that over onto Psalm 142. And next week, I think we'll probably look at Psalm 77. We'll do the same thing because it follows the same pattern. And it's a helpful pattern for us as we process our own pains. It begins with an address, followed by a complaint, followed by a request, followed by an expression of trust and praise. It begins with an address to God. Now notice here from that description, this address to God comes from an address. Where is David when he's praying this prayer? Where is he? You don't have to guess. It's in the Bible, right? Where is he? He's in a cave. What's he doing in a cave? Well, he's not spelunking. Isn't that what it's called? Like he's not looking at stalactites and stalagmites, whichever those may be. He's not just touring a cave like you would tour, you know, like you would tour the Mammoth Cave. But what David is doing here is David is, is hiding. Like here, we don't even have to, to guess at the events. We probably, if we, as we read like the historical narrative piece of the Bible and, you know, 1 Samuel gives us a huge chunk of David's life, we can do, draw a correlation between the events of 1 Samuel chapter 22 to Psalm 142. 1 Samuel 22 tells us of the events. Psalm 142 tells us what David is feeling in those events. And what's happening in 1 Samuel 22 is, is, is David, this is shortly, this is before David has become king. He's been anointed as king. Samuel the prophet has already said he's a king. He's already slayed the giant uh, Goliath. Remember, that's probably what he's most famous for, slaying Goliath. And so Samuel says, you know, again, to, to David, David, you're gonna be a king, but here's the problem. There already is a king. It'd be like somebody showing up to the new, hey, have you met the new employee, right? It'd be like me showing up on a Sunday morning, be like, hey, have you met the new guy? I'm like, no hey, this is, this is, you know, so-and-so. He's the new lead pastor of the church. I mean, oh, well, there's a problem. I thought that was my job. That's what's happened here. The prophet Samuel has said to David, David, you're to be the king. Here's the problem. King Saul is already the king, right? And so then David slays Goliath. Everybody starts singing him his praise. And then what uh, Saul does is he's like, David, like I, you got a knack at this killing thing, right? Like you, you're pretty good at it. We, why don't you lead an army? And so then David begins to lead an army and God starts giving David supernatural success. 
He starts just slaying all these Philistines. He's a great general. He's a military genius. And all of these successes starts happening. And then all the people start singing the praises of David. It says even the young women come out into the streets and they sing a song. And their song sounds like this. It says, Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his hundreds or tens of thousands is the song they start singing. Now, you know, if you're David, that's like, hey, that's a good thing. But if you're Saul, that's a bad thing. Now, this is a good point for us because sometimes what we think may help and ease our pains in life is success. We think if I could just be successful, whatever that may be, if I could be successful at my job or successful in life or successful as a dad or successful as a mom or make more money or some level of success that we've identified that that would bring, you know, an ease to the pains of my life. But what David teaches us is success just brings new levels of pain in his life. All these people start singing this and guess what happens to Saul? He grows envious and he grows jealous. And so then he's like, hey, we got a problem here. I've created a problem. That problem's David. And so I need to take him out. And so he begins to attack and come after David and David has to run and David has to flee. The first place David goes to flee is to a city named Gath. Bad place for David because guess who's from Gath? Goliath was from Gath that he's already slayed. So he can't stay in Gath very long. And so he continues to go into the south and then he hides in the caves of Adullam is where he finds himself, where he's hiding there. And it's in this place that he feels these feelings. David is fearful. He's fearful for his life. He's fearful for his future. He is alone. He's isolated. There's like 150 men that are looking for him. There's a bounty on his life and he's hiding. And as we even see in this text, he feels imprisoned. He calls the cave a prison. He's trapped by these circumstances. He's in despair. He feels hopeless. He feels forgotten, forgotten by people and forgotten by God. Now, I doubt that you've ever been on the run for your life. Maybe possibly you have, but I doubt you've ever had to run for your life. But I bet feelings like what David feels, you have felt. I bet you know what it feels like to feel forgotten. I bet you know how it feels to feel isolated, totally alone, surrounded by people and yet to feel unknown, unseen, and to feel lonely. Loneliness. It's something that we feel. It's something that we experience. Fearful. Look at what he says in verse number four, that no one cares for my soul. That's the feelings of feeling forgotten. And maybe you've experienced that. Maybe it's come after a series of hard events where the punches just kept rolling like nonstop. It wasn't just that one thing, but it was death by a thousand paper cuts or even worse, maybe by a thousand sword stabs that you felt in your life. Thing after thing that just pummeled you down. Maybe you felt alone and forgotten after the death of a significant loved one. It'd be a very disorienting thing to lose a loved one, whether that be a a parent or a grandparent or a spouse or a child. Maybe it's a time when you moved away. Maybe it's when you joined the military. Maybe it's whenever you went out to school. I mean, sometimes for us as men, we think about like feeling feelings and that's for weak, immature men. But remember who David is? Again, this is the dude that stood toe to toe with Goliath. This is the guy that killed a bear and a lion with his bare hands. This is a strong man. And yet he's feeling these feelings. Isolation and fear and loneliness and 
feeling forgotten. Now listen, the Bible doesn't tell us how to avoid caves, but rather what the Bible tells us is how to climb out of a cave. And that's what David is experiencing here. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, who understood caves like this, understood feelings like this, he said this, that caves are effective classrooms in the school of faith and in prayer. Look at that. They're effective classrooms. David prayed while he was in the cave, Spurgeon says, but later on when he was in the palace, it's where he fell into temptation with sin with Bathsheba. He adds, caves have heard the best prayers. One of the main courses in the school of faith is learning how to handle trials. And David, as a young man, when he was waiting to be king, he found out that the classroom, the class met in the cave. Such good truth. Look at while he was at the cave, look at what David does in verse number one. He says, with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. That is prayer. Look, look at what David is doing. I'm using my voice. I'm crying out. With my voice, I'm, I'm pleading for mercy to God. I'm pouring out. I'm telling God these things. Like maybe past um, feelings like isolation, past loneliness, past pains, past unanswered prayers. Like I realize that some of you, as a young child, you prayed prayers. God, please don't let them divorce. God, please don't let him touch me again. God, please don't. You pleaded to God and then it seems like God didn't answer that prayers and what it makes you want to do is to never pray again. You poured out a, in a time of, of real pain and real tribulation. You cried out to God and then God did what seemingly was the very opposite of what you asked him to do. And what that makes you want to do is to not use your voice. But what this text is doing is it's summoning us. It's calling us to come to God and to cry out, to use your voice, to speak that what is prayer? Well, prayer is talking to God. That's what prayer is first and foremost. It's using your voice, it's crying out. Notice what he says, he's, I pour out my complaint before him. Like if there's a surprising word in the Bible, in Psalm 142, I would say it's that word right there, complaint. Nobody likes a complainer, right? No one likes the, the coworker who's always complaining or the child who is always whining. No one likes to be that person Neither do we really like that person. But look here, there's an invitation to, uh, for us to come to God and to, to pour out our complaints. But David feels like, he feels like he's being treated unfairly and unjustly and he's honest before the Lord. He's stating the obvious. He's, he's pouring it out. He's emptying his heart of its contents. He's, he's spilling his guts. He's pouring out his soul to the Lord so that there's nothing left within him that hasn't been emptied out before the Lord. He's bearing his soul before God. Now listen, there's a way that we can complain that honors the Lord and there's a way that we complain that dishonors the Lord. There's a way that that complaining isn't the same as grumbling. Remember the children of Israel when they're in the wilderness and they grumble before the Lord and this provokes God to anger and he judges them because they're always grumbling. And what we see here in Psalm 142, um, complaining isn't the same thing that we read about in Exodus and Deuteronomy as, as grumbling here. That for the children of Israel, their grumbling was always infused with accusation. It was infused with anger. 
It, 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 their, their complaining wasn't a step in the process, rather it was the ends of the process. They've already like held God, uh, held, held God in court and found him wanting. They'd already judged God. Where here what David is doing, notice where he's complaining. It's in verse number two, not in verse number seven. It's okay to complain. It's okay to tell God, God, this doesn't feel fair. Just don't land there. That's what I'm saying. Don't get stuck in the slew of despair as John Bunyan wrote about in Pilgrim's Progress. That happens in the beginning of Christian's journey. It happens in the beginning when we feel these feelings of injustice. We complain before the Lord. We tell God, God, this doesn't feel fair. I feel like I'm being treated unjustly. These things have happened here. It's okay to complain. Just don't end there. David doesn't end there. In fact, look at what he says in verse number three. When my spirit faints within me, when my, when my spirit, what's inside of me, the very core of my being, when it's weak, right? You think about somebody fainting, Ooh, my spirit feels so weak. My legs aren't under me. There's no strength in me, no courage in me. I feel so fearful. But notice what he says, you know my way. Look, look, look at what David's doing right here in verse number three. He's not just feeling all his feelings, letting his emotions run wild. But rather what he's beginning to do, he's beginning to turn on those feelings already in verse number three. He's mixing his complaint with truth in verse three, part A, which is so important. What truth do you need when you feel forgotten? It's this truth right here, that you know my way. That God sees us even when we are in a cave. When we feel alone, we are never truly alone because God is with us. We may not feel it, but we must bring ourselves to believe it. And notice here he says, like, you know my way. Now, now there's so many different ways that we can use the word know. Like, like, like if, you know, if you, if you say, you know, do you know Andy Lawrence? Like, if you, if you run into somebody in Kroger and you would say to them, hey, do you know Andy Lawrence? Like, whether they truly know me or not may depend on who you're talking to. If you run into one of my Facebook friends and you say, hey, do you know Andy Lawrence? But we only know each other via Facebook. All they know about me is what I've chosen to tell them, which is very surface level stuff. They may say, I, yeah, I know him. He's looking old these days, right? I know him, he's got those wild kids. I know him, he, you know, da-da-da, and he may say that. But then if, what if you ran into Lou Ann and you said, do you know Andy Lawrence? She know him. <laughs> Let me tell you all about him. Like she knows me in a, in a very deep, true, intimate way. In some ways, she knows me better than I know myself because she sees my blind spots that are blind spots and they're, they're called that for a reason because I don't know those things. We've been together for like a long time, 30 plus years that we've been together. Believe me, she knows me. And whenever the Bible used the word know, even here as David used it, he doesn't just say, oh, you have a knowledge of my way, right? Like it's, it's like the, the tracking devices that you have on your that you have on your phone. Now, we won't talk about what the government's doing that. We'll just talk about, right? That's why those algorithms work. We're just talking about like, you know, your, your spouse that sees, oh, I know your way. I know where you are, right? Sometimes we'll go, I wonder where them kids are. We'll get on that tracking device because we're paying for them phones. Oh yeah, I see where he is. He's down there. What's he doing there? All those, like he's not just saying I'm tracking you and I know your way. What he's saying is I have deep, intimate knowledge with your way. That's what this text is saying. Even when you're down there and you're, you're crying out, I, I know that. And that's so important to us. Even for us who are sovereignty of God people, 
right? Like those of us that read a lot of John Piper and John Bunyan, like when you knew, those of us that knew who I was talking about, when I was talking about, like we're high sovereignty of God. We know God, you know everything. You're an omnipotent, uh, omnipotent. you're an omniscient. You know everything, you see everything. But listen, just because God knows everything doesn't mean he cares about everything. Just because God sees everything doesn't mean God really cares about everything. And sometimes we can compartmentalize those two things. We can see God's high sovereignty and high view of who he is and be like, he's God, he knows everything. But that doesn't lead us to the place of, and he cares about us intimately. And that's why it's so important that David begins to turn on his emotions in the very beginning to say, God, you know my way. You're intimate with my way. In fact, look at how, how, God, how David describes God throughout the text. Do you see the word God in your Bible? Now look at it, Psalm 142, look at it with me. Does he ever call him God? He never calls him God. Who does he refer to? Who is he praying to? In our English Bibles, it's Lord, capital L-O-R-D. That is God's covenantal name. That is God's, that, that, that is the, the name that God revealed to Moses in the burning bush. It's the God of Jacob, the God of, the God of promise, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of, uh, I, I'm sorry, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. It's his covenantal name. His name is Yahweh. See, God is what he is. Yahweh is his name. And here what David is saying is David is invoking the covenantal name of God. And the same day that you come to Luann and say, hey, do you know Andy? She knows me better than anybody. Why? Because we're in covenant together. We're in a real relationship, a real covenantal relationship. We're married to one another. And it's because of that marriage that gives her proximity into my life and it allows her to know me. She knows me better and more intimately than anybody else. Why? Because we are in covenant. I'm not in covenant with anybody else like that, like in the way that I am in covenant with Luann. In the same way, when David is praying to the Lord, when he's praying to, whenever he says here, with my voice, I cry out to Yahweh. He's saying, God, you know me because we are in covenant relationship together. You know me better than you know all the other peoples, right? Who are outside of this covenant relationship. He's invoking the covenant even in saying, this is who I'm praying to. Look at what he says in verse number four. Look to the right. He says he looks to the right and he sees that there is none who take notice of me. There's no refuge remains to my soul. So even though he's turned on his emotions in the beginning, he's still feeling the feelings. He's still processing the pain, the isolation, the loneliness that he feels. I feel forgotten. I look to the right. That would be the, in, in, a, in a court of law, the person to the right. Like my grandfather used to always call me, this is Andy. He's my right-hand man. That's what he'd say. Anybody ever said that about you? He's my right-hand man. What does that mean? He means he's a, a place of responsibility. He's a kid I, I turn to. I mean, he said it about all the grandkids, but, you know, I always think he liked me the most, but nevertheless, he probably did. But he's my right-hand man, right? That's a place, of, and he's saying, I'm turned to the right. There's no right-hand man there for me. When you're in a court of law, the person that was stood on the right would be your, your eyewitness, your character witness, the person that would testify on your behalf. They would stand on your right and the accuser would stand on your left. And he said, there's nobody there to testify, no one there to stand up with me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul, David goes on. Verse five, I cry to you, O Yahweh. And then I say, you are my refuge my portion in the land of the living. Do you see what he's doing there in verse number five? He stopped telling God about his troubles 
and he's starting to tell his troubles about his God. That's what he's doing right there. He stopped just listening to his emotions and thinking about his pain and think about his situation and thinking about his circumstances. And now there's been a, a twist and a turn. And now what he's doing is he's preaching to his circumstances. He's talking to his pain and he's telling them who his God is. Notice he uses two metaphors about God. God is our refuge, he says. Now in verse four, no refuge remains to me. That may have felt true. I feel so vulnerable in this place. They're gonna find me. This isn't a very good hiding place down here in this cave. There's all these people scouring about in these caves looking for me. There's no refuge. There's no place of safety, no place of security for me. And then he says, but you, God, you ultimately are my refuge. He's beginning to look upward. No longer looking outward, but beginning to look upward. God, you are a place of hiding. You are that place of security. You are that place of safety. You are that shelter from the storm. God, you are my refuge, my safe place of hiding for me. I'm hiding myself in you, hiding myself in thee. But second, look at what he says about God. He says, God, you are my portion. Do you see that? You are my portion in the land of living. Like, man, if you talk about something that you might not think about, like if you ever thought about God being your portion and what that means, but it's something that will just absolutely set you free. Encourage your heart. What he's saying when he says, God is my portion, he's saying, God is all I have and God is all I need. See, that's what it means by a portion. Remember when you were in, in school and you went through the line at the cafeteria and the lunch lady, there's a great song about the lunch lady, by the way, but anyway, the lady, lunch lady was over there and she's uh, portioned out your meal for you. Those of you who are in the military, you, you know that they portioned out that, that, that scoop of mashed potatoes and they used that little ice cream scooper and that's what you get. You get what you get. You don't throw a fit. Now, now take it and eat it. This is your portion. Like what he's saying is God is, is that portion. Well, he's not scoop full of mashed potatoes. It's more than that. It's an entire meal. It's the choice of steak dinner. That's what he's saying is, Lord, you satisfy me. You're all that I have and you're all that I need that will fill me, that will satisfy me. You are my allotment and you are enough. That's what he's saying. You're enough to satisfy the hunger of a soul. You're, you're enough whenever I feel forgotten and I feel isolated and I feel all totally alone. I feel like no one's around me. Not only is any, nobody's there for me, but everybody is against me. You're in a job place that felt like that. Sitting across the table from a boss that you just felt like, man, this dude's against me. Not for me, he's against me. Maybe you felt like that in a marriage that your spouse had turned against you and all they had for you was contempt. All they could see was all of your problems and all of your shortcomings and all your failures. You're like, man, I'm trying. I'm getting zero credit for effort here. Can you, can you at least see that? Maybe you have felt like that. And where do you turn in those times? What we wanna do is we wanna turn against those people. But what David is saying is you can turn to the Lord because he is your portion. Not just your portion when you get to heaven. He's your portion here in the land of the living, he says. Not just in heaven, but here on this earth. He is enough. And then we move into the part where he begins to make a request. And the requests are pretty simple. It's what you would probably pray in that same kind of place. Look at what he says, verse number six, attend to my cry. Hear me. I'm crying out to you, God. Now show up. Show up in, in power, show up in presence. 
Attend, hear my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me, that's what you would pray. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of this prison. Bring me out of prison. That's how he sees this cave. It's imprisonment. Let me bust out of this thing, he says. That's oftentimes what those feelings of forgottenness and and isolation and loneliness feel like to us. Feel like imprisonment, punishment, judgment, abandonment. And he's saying, let me bring me out of this dark place that I may give thanks to your name, that the righteous will surround me, that you deal bountifully with me. And the last part, we see the hope. He cries and he says, attend my cry, draw near. Let me experience your presence. Let me experience your nearness. The remedy for forgottenness is to know that you are seen by the Lord and not just seen, but that he is present and that he is with you. That even though the way may be difficult, but to know that the Lord knows your way. And not only that, not only does he know your way, but the Lord is the one who knows the way out of dark places like caves. Deliver me. Bring me out of this prison. But notice here the purpose. So that I may give thanks to your name. He says, the righteous will surround me for you will deal bountifully with me. Notice David's focus isn't on happiness. He doesn't say, deliver me so I can be happy again, Lord. His focus is on praise, not his own personal happiness. His focus is on giving God glory that is due him. What he says is, I'm going to to draw a crowd when I begin to brag on you, God. When I begin to tell everybody what you did for me when I was down in that cave and when I felt, when I begin to brag on you, I drew a a crowd uh, around me. When I started telling folks of how you came and you rescued me, how you were my rock and my refuge, when I was in a hard place, when I felt like I was against the rock and a hard place, I found you to be that rock and I found you to be the one that delivered me out of that hard place. When you showed up and you delivered me, he's telling his testimony. He's saying, this is gonna give me a testimony when I have opportunity to tell my testimony, there's gonna be a a crowd that is gonna draw around me is what he says. You're gonna deal bountifully bountifully around me and the righteous will surround me and we're gonna all together join and give thanks to his name. What David says is I'm gonna have a testimony from this. Even as I thought about our own rhythms as a church, you know, I felt convicted that I don't know that we do this enough as a church. I don't know that we create space and places for you to tell your testimonies. I know some of you have testimonies. Some of you Your heart resonates with David here in Psalm 142 because you felt that, you've been there. I've gotten to share with you about my similar feelings. I mean, this was a text that brought great freedom and hope to my own heart this summer on sabbatical. And I have because I get the microphone in the pulpit. I get to talk about that. Maybe we as a church, maybe we need to look at other places and other times when you can brag on the Lord how the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. We're gonna look for opportunities to do that, hopefully in 2024. But here, what we get to do is we get to brag. Our focus isn't on just on our happiness. The focus isn't on our personal peace, but the focus is on, on praise. So we come to a close, run out of time. In the gospel, we don't just celebrate a God who tells us how to escape out of caves by leaving a hidden map in a cave for us. That's not what I'm saying that Psalm 142 
It's not like a, a treasure map that's been hidden. If you ever find yourself in a cave, you can go there. No, what we celebrate is something even greater than that. We celebrate a God who comes down, that Yahweh has come down. And Jesus is the one who climbs down into caves with us and knows our way and leads us out of caves. That Jesus, the Lord, is the one who has descended even into the deepest cave, death. The deepest cave that you and I will ever feel is death. And Jesus has descended and he's climbed down into that cave and he has defeated death on our behalf. And he leads us with his own resurrection out of that cave and he delivers his people, his covenant people from dark caves, including our own deaths. Jesus is the one who promises to never leave us in a cave or forsake us while we are feeling stuck in feelings or in despair. Jesus is the one who has given us the Holy Spirit to dwell with us, who is the true remedy for feeling forgotten and lonely and isolated. Yahweh delivers us because he is a deliverer. And we give thanks to him, even this morning as we come to remember him in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you know us intimately, that you care about us, Lord. Lord, may our view, our high view of you and your glory, may it not undermine your nearness to us. May it not undermine your compassionate feelings for us, Lord. Lord, may, this, may there be one truth that rings true that we hold on to here in this text, and that is that you know our way. There is no place that we can go, even as the psalmist will say, there's no, there's no depth that we may descend into, no height that we climb. The darkest isn't even dark to you. There's nowhere where we can escape your presence, Lord. And may that be a word of comfort to us. Sometimes that could be a word of fear to us. And it can be when we're running and we're living in sin and we're rebelling. But may it also be a word of comfort to us when we're feeling isolated and alone and feeling forgotten, Lord, that you are never forgotten us. We can experience you. Jesus, as we come and as we think about your own life and your death and your resurrection and how you lead us and how you deliver us, Lord. And we hold these truths as we will hold them in a minute in our palate. We will hold them in our hands and then we will hold them upon our tongues. May we also hold them in our hearts, Lord. Jesus, you have descended, been born as one of us. Yahweh has come down, lived among us, descended into the deepest, darkest cave, and rose again as a victor, as one who delivers us. You are our great deliverer. In your name we pray. Amen.